0: normally, if you go to recommender on Amazon or something, it tries to learn what you like, including like the price. But here, it doesn't matter if you like Harvard and Yale. Like, what it matters is, can you get in? So I have to figure out your feasibility getting in and the thing that you like and put those together. And that depends a lot on your characteristics because of the way the algorithm works to sign kids. It depends on the priorities. It depends on the neighborhood. In some cases, it might depend on if you have siblings or All these different categories that we're trying to target and help people.
1: Welcome, friends, to Obviously the Future, the show that explores the massive trends that will shape our world. In conversation with the trailblazers, the nonconformists, and the hidden experts who are building tomorrow, today. Who do we got today, Caitlin?
2: Today, we have Chris Nielsen. Chris is the CEO and founder of Tether Education, an innovative platform that connects parents, students, schools, and sometimes the government to organize and enroll kids into schools and daycares. Uh, Chris is also a tenured professor at Yale, where he has studied and spent his entire research career in understanding schools as small businesses through industrial organizational principles. He's built chatbots to help in improve information around schools, and he has an interesting perspective about why he's chosen to leave academia and take the startup plunge. So I'm excited for this conversation, and Chris is, is an entertaining nice. and, and uh, original thinker. So Chris, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: So we'd love to start who you are and how you grew up in in Chile and the, your journey to to Yale.
0: I'm Chilean American. My parents moved to the US. Uh, I was born months after <laughs> and and then we did grew up in the in California, Alaska. My, my parents were undocumented, so we had to move around a lot. And we moved back to Chile in the mid 90s when I was before high school, so I went to high school in Chile, and there I got a super different experience of going to a a really fancy private school where I had uh, the opportunity to to do that, and that was like a totally different experience of going to public school that I think were really good, actually, in Alaska, some of the places I went to. Also, my mom didn't really know what was going on, so she'd go try to sign me up at school's and we'd end up in a portable on the other side of the city because there was no slots. And you realize later as you get older and you start to study how the system works. But this contrast, I think in Chile, was it was interesting because I got to see what what would happen if you got to the, go to the best high school. The well, high school I went to in Chile that had 30% of the CEOs went there. How did and, you
2: get and, in? How did your parents get you into that Basically,
0: school? yeah, I had a family member that I didn't really know very well basically hooked me up. And I I guess I was pretty smart and good at sports, but didn't pay for it or anything. I actually worked construction during that period. And so I was the only guy that worked. And Mm -hmm. I actually did a company when I was a a junior. I started a paintball field that there was no paintball in Chile at the time. So I convinced all my rich friends and we set up a paintball field in the best town to go on vacation, but it's too expensive. So we did this to be able to go to the (laughs) <laughs> to that place in the south of Chile, it was a fancy place. I went to University of Chile, um, and those guys there—that's prestigious thing. It's like the best students or whatever go there and do economics, business, and they care a lot about impact social. People go from there to work at the government, work run the country basically, and it's no joke. They like kick out thirty percent of people. It's like a yeah. super. there's no excuses type education. It's public. There's no libraries, no books. It's just straight working hard you got to solve all the problems. Now I'm at Yale. I teach undergrads. And I think like when I was in undergrad, the coolest thing in the world was to do a PhD because then you could be the president and change the world or something. And if you couldn't really hack that, you might go to McKinsey or some sort of consulting job. And so I yeah. turned down those types of jobs to be like, I'm going to do a PhD, which I think in the U.S. would be nuts. Students would, that wouldn't be.
2: Both Arvin and I, we went to consulting first. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and when I graduated, I graduated the top of the class and the top yeah. of the class gets McKenzie and J.P. Morgan and diff- these different, those are the jobs that I'm like, that would be cool, but like way cooler to do a PhD. <laughs> and then looking yeah. back now, I'm like, that was nuts. But yeah, so that was a little bit the journey. I think the experience of being in the U.S. and in Chile, like seeing like a lot of inequality in Chile. And differences in opportunities. I went to public schools in the US that were better equipped and that were good in Alaska that had a lot of resources. And then in California, just being in portables and not having any resources that, that weren't very good, I think had that thing in my head as that being a, an issue about access.
2: When and- you did your PhD at Yale, did you know you were going to study? schools and school organization, or how did you find your way to that discipline? Yeah,
0: I, I was pitching that like day like, before applying, but I, I worked at the central bank after graduating. I in, uh, did five years of econ and stats and math, and then a couple of more years of more stats and math and econ. And then you work for a couple of years and then you have to be the best at everything the whole time. And then you can allowed to apply to a PhD after all this. Right. I went to work at the central bank and I was the aide to the governor for three years. And while I was there, I think it was really interesting to do a lot of um, policy, like think about policy and politics and being these discussions about where they're going to intervene the exchange rate or whatever. And a lot of what was interesting there was the use of models and like, you know, thinking about economics to help you make decisions in the world, but with a lot of uncertainty, like you can't actually know for sure what's going to happen, but you can discipline your thinking through the use of economics and data and but then there's a second thing there's a period in chile where we've been growing for a long time inflation was really low stability was there everything should be there for firms to invest and grow and they weren't as much as we think they should and we talked a lot about frictions what are the frictions that are stopping us from growing more what is stopping our country from getting out of this like middle income kind of trap because we solved the easy things we're not easy things but the obvious things like inflation instability and it came up a lot of these micro frictions and like, why don't we have more people that know how to do stuff? And it was like education is like this gateway. And, and you read about it in the literature from the US and for most of the research is like talks about experiences that are narrow and it's not clear what we that we know what's going on. And Chile is one of the weird cases where they have vouchers. So the, the like 75% of the schools are private. And yet they're not investing and they're not competing. And like, why aren't they better? Should they compete with each other? And just, cause it's, if there's one private school then maybe they can cream skim the best kids or something. But what if all of them were private, what would happen? And so I didn't really know how to take that question on really. Like I just had it in my head, this is weird. Like why, why doesn't this work better? In the US debate, people would be like, we need more private participation cause that would make it more efficient cause they'll compete and they'll do this, whatever or we need reforms in the public sector, or we need more resources. But in Chile, we had already done all the things that you supposedly should do, and it still wasn't like awesome. And I thought maybe we could study schools like they're small businesses and think about their decisions and why don't they invest? Why don't they hire better teachers? What exactly is going on in this industry of these tons of tiny firms that are like providing a vital service to our country's growth? And so, yeah, I pitched up from day one. I came to Yale because Yale is the best place for doing industrial organization, which is like empirical tools to study competition in industries like this. And nobody just ever done it before in education, which is why I did really well on the, in the academic kind of aspect of was taking tools that people use to study other industries like pharmacies or, or restaurants, other things. Nobody really deployed this for studying daycare and schools and things like that. So you
2: then got your PhD, you completed it. And when did you start taking the ideas that you wrote about in papers and applying them into consumer facing yeah. software?
0: I mean, actually right away, because my thesis was like studying competition and how different funding schemes of how the vouchers are provided changed the face of competition. And I got immediately drawn into a policy that uh, was happening in Chile that was basically like, what if we eliminate all coat prices and we just subsidize more and we just get rid of prices that way it's more equitable. And so I got pulled into being the advisor of the minister for that law right after graduating. And there I was like, the state of the art is you have some digital platform for people to apply and you can make sure that people don't turn kids away. If there's no prices, you're going to have excess demand. And so... What are you going to do? How are you going to make sure that the excess demand when prices are zero, the best school is going to, everyone's want to go there. So then you have to have some mechanism to figure out who goes where in a fair way that's transparent. And so I had to like start helping them develop, take what we know from the best implementations in the world, but then adapt it for the context of a developing country that has people that don't know what's going on. And so then we just started to develop and test things like, what do you do if somebody's not very digital? Like they're gonna now you did this digital, they're gonna make they, it may be worse off now. You're trying to help them, but they might screw up or something when they apply. The whole point of this is that people don't know what they don't know, so you yeah, yeah. catch them. They think they know what they're doing, and then you're like, actually, what, is that your plan? And then you're like, really? Because it looks like not that great a plan. Did you know these facts? Can I help you think of something else? That turns out to be relevant for school choice, for daycare, for college. And a lot of the equity gap that we see, part of it is that people are making bad decisions and you can fix that. Even though you can't fix the truly systemic problems, like there's some bigger problems, but they're harder to fix. This is what drew this to me. This is fixable. I can fix this without a lot of effort and just some tech and we can just solve a problem and get more people into schools, get more kids into majors that they're going to like and they're going to do well, et cetera. So you're saying basically
1: a lot of the low-hanging fruit of education policy had already been implemented in Chile, and you're studying what else could be there. Is it b- basically that better information directly to the decision makers It can be an access point for change?
0: If you have a private sector that provides incentives for investment, incentives for competition, you get some of the things that are good about other industries that are efficient, and you don't have to be on top of them to make sure they're not screwing things up. So that was what was done in Chile. The industrial organization approach is a study like what frictions are stopping this market to be more competitive and so that part nobody really gotten into what do you do if you do have a bunch of private guys that you still have to like regulate they're not just all going to compete as if they were trading futures on this they're literally like providing differentiated goods and they have market power and you have to think about what your policies are doing to that. And maybe you make it super hard to open a school because you want quality to be high but now there's less entry. And now nobody provides schooling in poor neighborhoods, for example. So there's these angles to that. But that one was much harder to change because you got to go, you have to convince people in in Congress to change laws about funding and about regulations much harder. Um, On the other hand, you have families that the consumer side is a bunch of, it's a demand side that's not very informed, uh, especially the people that you might care about the most are people that they themselves didn't actually experience the good. They didn't go to a school that was awesome. They didn't. They don't know what to look for necessarily, but they sure as hell want to help their kids have a good yes. opportunity. And so when you see them going to things that aren't so good, you might think that they don't care. If you want to like formally estimate the elasticity of quality of price or something, you would get, they don't really care. But then a lot of the research has shown that when you show them and you give them things that they can look at and compare, they actually make choices that are very similar to more educated, richer families. They just were at a disadvantage on the information side. That one is low hanging fruit. And the advent of data and AI helps you personalize the way you get information to people. So it's not just go online and look for things, but help me make these really important decisions in a way that is the best for me and my family. And that way we don't miss out on opportunities. It's much harder to solve more structural things. So that is an error. Now the kicker is that if all these people were making decisions like that, the market would work better. Yes. As well, like yes. you can't just have a, a crappy school in a poor neighborhood and just be like, yeah, we teach kids how to read. And parents are like, I guess that's good. But then they're all comparing to this other school that's not that far away that has a library. And you're like, where's my library? Yes. Like, I know books are good. And so the school's got to either come up with a library or they're going to lose their kids. And so then you start to up the game and you make this market more efficient or at least the, especially at the, at the bottom. And it, this couldn't be more important today than ever. And this is, I got, I got into this thing where, you know, trying to do the startup was there's so much money and talent going into solutions in education right now. And especially after COVID, there was like 10 X more investment talent is going in there, coming up with ideas for people to learn more and faster. And so there's the opportunity that we can get people education of very high quality going forward, but there's a risk. That's not going to reach everybody. It's not going to get to people. If, schools aren't acquiring the best innovation. They're not investing in being on the frontier. That's not going to get to everybody. And in particular, after COVID, you would have thought everyone would have digitized. But in a lot of contexts, nobody did anything. The kids just didn't learn. And then you can see the divide start. But fancy private schools like the one I went to are all digital now, thanks to COVID. But the other 90% is still sending maybe a WhatsApp message to let people know come to school. And so that divide is only going to get bigger. And and so it's almost like a, it's urgent. It's like an urgent thing that we're going to get a lot of inequality if we don't somehow make sure these people don't fall behind.
2: Is that why you decided to start Tether? Can you talk us through, you get tenure at Yale, which is amazing, crazy, (laughs) crazy (laughs) accomplishment, and then you decide to start a company.
0: Yeah, that's what my family friends are like. So you tried to do one of the hardest things ever, and then you just went and got yourself into one of the other hardest things ever. Like immediately <laughs> after, with no break, and it was like that. That is a question that people ask a lot. But I think to some extent, it, it was unrelated to getting tenure or not. Tenure, you have to publish enough work, a body of work, and have to be a leader in the field. But I only got into this in the first place because I wanted to have an impact and find solutions that were practical that could fix things. And I believed that economics and studying this industry could be important and impactful. And the more I studied it, the more I learned that I was right. And that was not just Chile, but every major urban area in 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 the developing world and developed worlds has similar issues. And so I was like, working on that and working a lot with governments where you do things and implement them and test them and they work. So then people publish your papers because they're like, that's amazing science. But also you came up with that, you thought it could work and then you tested it and it did. And so then you're like, that's like awesome. The issue was I'd been working at from an NGO for a while that i would gotten, been able to raise a lot of money. We do a bunch of projects and we do stuff, but there wasn't like this ability to scale and do this. Like I could do this in a whole country or two countries, three countries. But I couldn't like light a fire that would catch on and just grow. And and yeah, so basically we had done the thing that would work the best ever. We replicated the same results over and over in different cities, different places. Basically, the application platform that we started in Chile, we tested this virtual assistant that helps people make choices. But it's doing things that are really complicated, like predicting the equilibrium of everyone's applications and assignments and figuring out whether you're going to get in or not and recommending other things and doing this in real time. And that was cool for research, but it helped people get into schools and it helped them go to better schools. Now we replicated in lots of places. And we just, I couldn't believe it because we got the same results everywhere. We kept doing different cities, Peru, Ecuador, Brazil, Colombia, everywhere. And it would work every time. Wait, so sorry, are you saying
1: that there, that, it's recommending for each individual, potentially different schools. So it's recognizing, it's like saying, this is the best school for you. This is the best school for you I mean, based on various like, factors.
0: Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's totally personalized, but the more innovative part was that normally if you go a recommender on Amazon or something, it tries to yeah. learn what you like, including like the price. But yes. here, it doesn't matter if you like Harvard and Yale, like what it matters is, can you get in? So I have to figure out your... Feasibility getting in and the thing that you like, and put those together, and that depends a lot on your characteristics because of the way the algorithm works to sign kids. It depends on the priorities. It depends on the neighborhood. In some cases, it might depend on if you have siblings or all these different categories that we're trying to target and help people. Yeah, but it makes it really complicated to know where to go, and so people a lot of times apply to three, four things. Actually, the application is a portfolio problem. Like formally, it's a portfolio problem. As if you were doing a portfolio of like stock or or like finance portfolio, you have some risk and some return from these and you have to, so it's actually a pretty hard problem. And it's actually impossible to know your chances because that data is being acquired by the platform because everyone's applying and nobody else knows that data. It's just sitting at the platform. Like it's a market with no prices. Like normally a market, if there's a lot of demand, price goes up and you can see that. Imagine you were on Zillow looking for houses, but you didn't know the prices. You'd be looking at mansions and stuff all day and like doing a totally useless search because like you can't afford any of those places, but you wouldn't know until you applied and then they let you know. And then you have to wait a year to do it again. That would be like super dumb. And, and so that's basically what we we're trying to fix on the platform. And it worked really well. We got a, between maybe 7 and 12% more kids would get into a school that they wanted to go to. And that's like a lot of people. If you're like doing half a million people say in a country, then if you don't- at what get... age
1: level are, are these schools? So they're going to, this is talking about high school level or-, or Oh,
0: elementary are... school, like pre-K all the way through high school. So Whenever pre-K, happens,
1: it's more than, you're, you're saying there's more than just cost as a factor for what you, what school you can get into for at elementary level?
0: Yeah, imagine a market where there's entry. I mean, there's, yeah. you, you could have 30 options within two, three kilometers from your house. Yeah. And then they'll specialize in different things, like the music the one that's better music, the one that does environmental stuff, the one that this and that. Yes. So you get a variety of options. And they're all trying to do something cool that people like. Yes. And at the same time, comply with regulation. And so then parents like, need to know about the options there. 50% of families in the neighborhood don't know the school that has the highest test score value added. They have never heard of the name of the school. Yeah. And so that's like an obvious problem. And they, that school actually has empty seats most of the time. Yeah. And you're like, this is like a, a Michelin star restaurant Yes, that doesn't have open table yes. to do reservations. Yes. So basically somebody cancels in the day. Nobody can take that table now. Yes. And, or you get a big line outside and both of those aren't very efficient. And maybe if you're poor, you're like, I'll never be able to get into the Michelin star. That's like impossible. It must be super hard. If you had open table, you could log on and be like, oh, yeah. There's a table. Double click and take <laughs> yes. that opportunity. And yeah. that's like what we're trying to do at Tether. And by the way, the, the name, I guess some people are like, that's a crypto name or something. I'm like, yeah. I don't care. Like that, I don't even know <laughs> if that's gonna be around in very much longer. We're grabbing these, these schools and we're tethering them to the frontier. And we're not letting them stay behind when yeah. we catch on this all this innovation we're gonna get from all these cool people studying ed tech stuff, they're coming up with cool things. We don't want anybody to be left behind. The idea was we're gonna do a company that's gonna take advantage of the innovation and the ideas from the research, but find a business model that's sustainable so we can grow and expand and reach everybody and do it as fast as possible. And that way we connect all these these schools. So that was the story and the name. Nice.
1: Nice. It's a good well,
2: story. It's it's funny because Avalanche is also a L1 blockchain. So people sometimes think that we're related to <laughs> the blockchain also.
0: Honestly, like when you asked, like, why did you do this? I was a little bit like a lot of the research doesn't seem like so obvious. Like you find things, but it's not so obvious. You can just like, literally implement. Like you find core, like underlying things, you find insights that could be used, but we built something we could just literally implement. And it would help people. And I felt a little bit like you do the vaccine for COVID because you're a scientist and you come up with something. You test it. It works. And then you're like, I'm just going to leave it on this table and I'm going to go back and do crossword puzzles. <laughs> I can't possibly <laughs> until I try to get this out. And I think in tech, actually, in, in governments, if you work with governments, which was my case, like they're not going to be. first adopters especially governments in in countries that lack um capacity to implement so it was like a moral imperative to try to do something
1: yeah Uh, this is near and dear to my heart in my initial foray in education actually when i first worked for caitlin a decade ago in the summer i had a similar intuition that was like okay in india you have these low-cost private schools There's tons of them and all of them emphasize the quality of their facilities or like the quality of their English program, like that they speak English. There's no real, there's a lot of information asymmetry because you have parents who don't have a lot of access to education themselves. And there was this company called Gray Matters Capital that was, had designed a very good assessment. And they were trying to sell that to schools. They were trying to get the schools to take this assessment that they could then publish a scorecard of like, here's how the schools perform in the area. Let's democratize the access to information and people can make better choices. The incentive problem was that schools had no incentive to take the assessment. And then even if they did, they had the choice of whether to release the results or not. So my point was, why do you even need the schools? Indian, Asian parents love taking tests. So Mm -hmm. for their kids. So I was like, let me license the test. And I went to this slum in India and literally was like, hey, any kid can come take this test. It charged them like five rupees to to take the test because then they feel like, okay, there's some prize involved. And then I'll just have tell me what school you go to when you take the test. And then I'll just aggregate the data on my end. It was like, okay, that's let's just go awesome. directly to the parents, forget the schools. Yeah, and then no, you can start awesome. to get information.
0: Yeah. That's like, Problem. That's, that's exactly like what we're talking about. That's amazing. That sounds really cool. <laughs> And cool enough. One of the influential studies that affected me and like I think the was in Pakistan. They literally the researchers did exactly this. They tested there's no information. Like if a market yeah. has no signals, that market can have an equilibrium that's lower quality yes. than they would. <laughs> so what these guys did, they took a hundred villages and they tested them and they told everybody the scores in the village, like what yeah. happened, how old the kids and then they went to another hundred villages, tested everybody, didn't tell anybody. Yeah. Came back two years later, tested everybody again. And it turns out the areas with the information relative to the other ones who had a higher test scores, like everybody yes. learned more. Now. Yes. And particularly yes. the worst schools got better. And the best schools actually lowered their prices. Because yeah. the best schools were like, we're just like, we're the best school. We're going to charge a ton. And if people were like, you're the best, but you're not that much better. And so mm-hmm. prices also serve the role of signals sometimes. Yes. And so that could also tell you, maybe the best one would be the one that would want to create a signal, but maybe they don't want to, because it's not in their best interest. They are benefiting from the lack of competition and this equilibrium that's worse. So imagine you could unlock the productivity of an industry. That's five points of GDP. That also is the one that delivers the capacity to increase people's productivity and efficiency. And yeah. take advantage of all the cool tech things that are happening. Like how does somebody come from a, a village in Pakistan or in India or whatever, and then get to where they need to learn things. Yeah. And the way they learn is being inefficiently provided just because the industry isn't working well. And that's just, it's like hard to unsee. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That's a good yes. way of putting it.
0: Yes. And actually also related to this, a lot of governments provide the service of testing like in Latin America and Chile in particular, since they've had vouchers for so long. They developed this infrastructure to regulate. And so there's a whole institutions that do testing to that yeah. basically schools don't pay for. It. And so COVID happened. And now every most places did stop testing after COVID. The politics and just in general, nobody wants to Everyone, it's going to look really bad. So then a lot of places stopped testing. And you started getting a lot of private sector providers being like, "I'll I'll give you a test. And then the richer schools are like, we still need to know what the kids know, the curriculum, these tests are useful. And parents want it. And it's that market that you discovered, I feel like it starts to arise because the government just shot themselves in the foot. They had a thing that was cool. They stopped doing it. And now solutions that are potentially less good, actually, are popping up. And um, it's super interesting how there's like demand for that. You could imagine tests help you make decisions about allocating your inputs. and But they also provide information to outside people to know what's happening at the school. I, I actually think one of the biggest insights that I had in the last couple of years before doing the startup was that beyond test. Parents care a lot about other things that are harder to measure ex but aren't so hard to discover in a digital age where you can do a, a interview with people or ex alumni say, why do you care? What's the coach of those teams talks about their season or whatever things that families could also care about along with learning. That would allow schools to want to participate in creating the content, because that's the barrier that you face, and I think or that these people that are doing the test face, is that schools don't do a lot of things that are in their best interest. The old the econ thing is that you, you don't see $20 bills on the ground. in education, you do. There's a lot of things that, like you could buy a taco with a credit card or an Apple Pay on the street anywhere in Latin America, because somebody there is going well, to pull out a phone, but at school, you got to pay like in checks or cash yeah, yeah or because yeah. they're just like not doing like an obvious thing. So that's just like the tip of the iceberg of the lack of a- acquiring innovations for small businesses that already happen in every industry, every HR stuff, accounting, like all this stuff is already entered. The health industry, I think, could be a good example of that's an industry with a lot of regulation on top. So you have to comply with a lot of things to the government. And that's like extra stuff. And you need some way to deal with that. The information thing is like a big deal. And and today we just have better tools to create it and to disseminate it. And the advent of these platforms that governments need to do to get kids into school are a perfect place to put all that information because all the families have to come through that portal. Imagine the U.S. You went to take the SAT and they hit you up with a bunch of information about all the options that's like the perfect place to like do that. And so if people are coming through here, that's an opportunity to help make this market more efficient, try to take advantage of the schools that are doing the best job and finding the right school for each kid. It's like a alignment of several things happening at the same time. So
2: Tether Education was the first investment out of our fund too uh, for Avalanche. So we'd love to hear from you what it's been like working with uh, Avalanche and taking venture money and if there were things that surprised you about being a venture back founder?
0: Yeah. I basically went to try to do this a few months before the financial crisis and a lot of the funding drying up in general. So I think I had to talk to a lot of VCs and I talked to a lot of people. And I think the first thing that stood out to me when I talked to, with, with you, Caitlin, when just as part of the early pitch was the different questions, the different kind of the kind of probing questions to try to understand what's that, what we're actually trying to do and being very open, but also have insights about the questions. So that was immediately because I felt most people were just filling out spreadsheets. What's this number? Tell me that number. I'm like, I'm doing a weird thing. I'm like doing the same with governments. we got millions of people on the platform, but at the same time, we're doing different things to try to make money. And I have to tell a whole it's complicated... So people are like, give me three numbers and I punch it in. And then I go to a meeting and then we decide based on that, actually, I think. I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but I I view it as without before even having done the investment, the you were like, you're pitching this kind of wrong. You should probably change the order and you should do this way, but, or basically questions that got me thinking, but also kind of advice. And there was a call, you're like, actually, let's just stop. I'm actually going to give you advice. People aren't going to tell you this. But this is what's probably not working with your way you're explaining this. And so then, and then I we worked around the clock. We had people in Europe where we did a whole 24-hour thing where we got a, a new deck back with incorporating the things. And then you quickly were like, all right, now we're talking. Let's get down to business and figure out how we're gonna make this work. That was
2: a pivot point for me, not just because the new deck that you presented was much better, but when people take on hard feedback and just turn it around really fast, that always gives me confidence that if they can do it like that, they'll do it again and again. And that's what you need to be to be successful.
0: Yeah, I think that that has happened. We have to take hard choices, but I I do think it is hard when you're trying to pitch, you're trying to like pour your heart out of something and then people are like, this is it. But it takes like more insight or a little more openness and flexibility of mind to To be able to imagine a different version of what you're saying and not just stay with the thing you first heard. Because I was like, if if you already have to come out and you have such a perfect pitch and everything's perfect, then every VC would just give you money. And then VCs don't add any value. You're a commodity. You're just Mm -hmm. like a a bank that it's like market value. But there's got to be some ability to like see something in there. And then I think later actually like working and understanding how to develop this, this idea and that wasn't, isn't like the easiest, like to explain or traditional kind of model. It's not like a SAS. It's not a pick. It's like some mix of things and like work with it to interact. And then there's just the amount, just the amount of just being available all the time is like something, I don't know what other people do, but I ran into a former student a couple of days ago that is now working at Delivery Associates. And can't believe that Caitlin. I'm just like ch- texting with Caitlin. Caitlin's just texting. I'm asking for <laughs> advice. She's like, "How much does she charge you? Like, how is that possible that you just have Caitlin Donnelly on auto redial?" On so that's an interesting kind of perspective. But you do get that. I have one of the people that's most savvy. This idea of like, you know, consulting. I yeah. think this is like the person that's trying to is like now tied to my fortunes, and so we're on this very shift much now. So it's, we're on the Apollo and we're like, but I managed to get stuck in the Apollo with some pretty capable people. So now we can like land this guy.
2: (laughs) That's one of the reasons that I always wanted to be a, a VC instead of just a consultant is that I think having skin in the game and putting your reputation on the line to build something was always more important to me than just charging fee for
0: service. Yeah, totally. And I see that as well, to be honest, like as a professor, you're like, already supposedly an expert at something. If I try to do something and I fail, that's super costly for me. But if you have skin in the but once you have skin in the game, like I'm actually I'm putting my hypothesis or what I think to test for real. If it doesn't like I think this will work, yeah. but if it doesn't work, you lose credibility, you could stay behind the research and be like this should work if people did it right. So now it's maybe I'll just try to do it right. Maybe I'm not the best person at getting doing it right, but like somebody's got to try. So anyway, I appreciate that, the, the help, I think I've grown a lot. I tell people like, do you like this? Cause you look like you're working like a crazy person. And I'm like, yeah, but it's like the super stimulating and it's a learning experience that is like high stakes. Like it matters for me, but it matters for potentially for the world and like what we're doing Yeah, in that. And then we also have a lot of talent, which is what I like to do. I used to do a lot of sports. You want to get the best people on the team and you play with them. And then then it's like when I work with people in research, it's like the smartest people that exist on this thing. It's like now again, it's we're working on this uh, and, uh, and it's like really stimulating to learn from the people around on this. So that's been, it's been, it's been amazing. And we might actually pull this off and it would be, we might get clips from this interview in the Netflix special that we'll have. <laughs> Chris was like, it
2: can't be too easy. Otherwise, there won't be any twists and turns from the Netflix special.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I always think about these these series about the things that were super successful, and then they have to make it fun. So you have to talk about things that aren't just working really hard and have a good idea. And so we got plenty of that. I think we'll have material.
1: Yep. (laughs) Okay. When you think from your academic research and what you're implementing, what to you is obviously the future that maybe the rest of the the people around you, the people that you interact with don't see yet.
0: I think what's obviously the future is that like you go to these low budget or cheap private schools and like all these people that are trying to get education. It's obviously the case that all these families that are currently poor today are in the future going to be middle-class or higher, more, more educated and they're going to want education quality education for their kids, like everybody else does when they get a little bit of money. Education is a thing that grows as a percentage of GDP. Like it's like one of the few categories is we do more. And so this is like one thing, that's one thing. There's going to be like a bunch of demand for this. The second is like the governments are aren't getting like much more efficient, like at the same rate, like governments lack the capacity to do a lot of things. And so there's going to be like a mix of public and private in these markets for sure. Like yeah. everywhere in the US after COVID, it's even more than before, but in developing countries, more than ever. And the third thing is just people are going to acquire education through digital means, like for sure in the future. And so, the way they do that, like the platforms, the marketplaces through which they acquire that, or the way the schools get access to the best ideas, is going to determine the equality or the inequality in access to education of the future because the, all these things are going to be software they're not going to have intrinsically a cost of providing it it's going to be about distribution channels and like knowing which one to get and like markups along the cha- the way to get things to people so if i think what's obviously the future is all those things but what's not obvious is what that future is going to look like is it going to be that all the cool innovations get to a few places and those companies mark up services a lot and don't bother sending a salesperson to the poorest neighborhoods to knock on their door? Or is it there, is there going to be one big company that does database management that just buys all the startups and doesn't let anybody innovate and do anything because they have all the, the data. And so they, or we can have a marketplace where there's like a bunch of innovators that are providing services and there's evidence generation that's finding which ones work and which ones don't and providing that evidence to schools so they know which ones are good and when they are they can get them easily and quickly and the bet when you do a new software is that you get scale you hit everybody if it works yes spend time knocking on doors convincing people or like developing sales yes. teams and things like that's like going to be gone it's yeah. going to be about the quality of the software so that's those are like the world the part that's not obvious the part that's obvious is that all these kids today they're going to be on ipads or something and they're going to be consuming digital education and so we got to make it that happen faster and hopefully happen in a way that's more equitable so that we are you know we have a world that's better off than than we have it today and totally um, yeah
1: wait but what about so really quick from your
0: economics perspective
1: and from the the Chilex perspective given the ESA wave that's happening in the US uh, and what Chile's done from vouchers do you have any predictions for like how this market will unfold as we see more money in parents' hands in America across many different states? Is it Are, are we probably overestimating what the change will look like? Or what does what your kind of experience tell you on that front?
0: I think there's a lot of, there's scope for this to be not much different and not very good, actually. I think the mistake is that people think just by getting rid of this like one friction that things are going to get fixed. I think that's the lesson you learn from truly. It's actually... A bunch of small little firms aren't necessarily going to compete and be super efficient. There will be more variety, there will be more entry, but you're going to have a big t- a big distribution. There's going to be really crappy ones, good ones, and yep. so there's an opportunity to like get on this and think about regulation to make it the sector more efficient instead of trying to stop it from existing. You could be like, let's you know roll with it and try to make this the best version of what it could be. Yes. And you can imagine the whole spectrum, actually. If you go to the country that has the most private sector, like that I know of, is Haiti. Yeah. And it's basically, there's no vouchers, there's no subsidies. It's just the government has no capacity to provide services. Yeah. And then at the other spectrum, you might have some Nord- Nordic country that has, everyone know everything's is amazing, their education. But if you go to like daycares in Norway or even uh, Sweden, they have vouchers. 50% of 40% of schools are private. It's not that big a deal because they regulate them. It's more contested in Sweden, but like in Norway, no people didn't even know that their daycare was private. Yeah. And that developing those systems so that people can get the things they need, but and but also make it so that they compete with each other and that there's quality, there's some minimal quality standards. Yes. Like having that in a market, I think is the best case for I think for governments that are facing this wave. And if you just ignore it, you try to yes. block it. Like this is what some places do, like in Lima in Peru, 70% of kids going to private school before COVID with no subsidy. Yeah. That's like, and the government doesn't even know where they are or anything, because they're like, no, we need to help our public schools and not pay attention to these privates. It's like, they're there, it's a reality, and you should just embrace it and try to make the best of it and try to, you don't want Trump universities. You might want Yale universities.
1: Yes. Some might even say the regulators need to see beyond the mirage.
0: Yeah, I think so. but you got to think about it in a way where you, you got to get out of the the politics. Where yes, that's actually how do you
1: ensure every kid has access to a quality education?
0: Exactly, it, it, is, it, the that's it. Question that we care about. Yes, we don't that's care it. about whether we have who's providing. Like, why do, is there something intrinsically good about who's doing what? Yeah, like, you know, we want quality education. with maybe some core values we want everyone to get. Maybe there's some, and then you think about well, what's the best way to do this. And I think that's why economics is such a good training to think about this because you have constraints and you have an objective and you have to try to do the best you can with the constraints you have. And if you're a poor developing country or you're a poor urban city, yep. the fact that you can't just like you have, in it, there's you started out screwed, isn't an excuse to not do anything and to just play politics. It's like you, you can do things, Yes, get out there and try to make a difference. And we have been learning how to do things. Um, and I, anyway, I, I, think that's, I think actually I'm very motivated. There's a bunch of scope to get things done, even though everything seems so Yes. Bad. Anyway, it's the best moment ever to do this because it's a basic. Sunlight is the
1: best disinfectant. But yeah. speaking of the best books, we're, we're actually at, he, here on the pod trying to build that ourselves, ground up de- deciding what are the best books in educa- to, to educate young, ambitious, uh, ambitious kids. So for you, Caitlin has this list called my younger self. And it's books that she would recommend to her younger self to read, and and that could have changed her life earlier. So what's a book, please not some esoteric academic academic, (laughs) uh, treatise. what's a book that you would recommend to your younger self that that you think could have had a big impact on you?
0: Actually, uh, yeah, I guess I read a lot of books when I was young, and I read way less now. I read zero books now. I don't read any, I barely read anything now. I am, but...
1: I'm sorry to hear that. I will say, even as a startup founder, I highly recommend fiction no, reading to all, all people.
0: I, I'm hoping that startup founders everywhere can read and we're crunching hard right now. But Yes. <laughs> I, I have to sometimes read a book that I read recently that I think actually is pretty interesting insight on 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 AI and economics. It's called Prediction Machines. And basically it's thinking from an economics perspective about how the cost of prediction went down. If the cost of prediction goes down, all these things are now possible that you didn't have before. But mm. if you think about it like that, you can frame it like, what happens if the cost of energy, like electricity goes down? Now mm. you can do toasters. You can do a bunch of things that you wouldn't have been able to do before. I think that it's like an easy reading. I think it's like a, it's like a pretty cool book that um, kind of connects to the current times that I actually force everybody that works with us to read that as part of the on- onboarding. Nice. So- wow. Yeah, what I'm thinking, we're talking. <laughs>
2: that's awesome. That's a really, that's a good recommendation. And yeah. it wasn't one I had heard before. Had you heard of it? Or-
1: no, I've not. Yeah, it check it out. It's, it's, yes, it's, yes. It's, thank you yeah. very much, Chris. We're really excited about everything you're building at Tethered and yeah, big fans of your work. No, thanks
0: a lot. Thanks a lot, this is yeah, I Actually thinking about how we got here, I saw something that you know, I think about every day, so that was yeah.
1: cool.